Good morning, y'all. Good morning. I want to welcome y'all here, too, to Church on the Trail. Lots of places you could be this morning, but you're here. God's got you here for a reason. I think he's got a really good, cool message uh, for us. If I don't mess it up, hopefully I won't. It'll be a good message, uh, meaningful message. You know, last week, we're working through the gospel according to Mark. Last week, Richard uh, did a fine job. Y'all give Richard a hand. It was a great message last week. We're so blessed to have him as part of our staff, um, and I'm so blessed personally just to have him as my friend. But he walked us through a bunch from chapter 4 to chapter 10, and that was a lot, and so some of it was a flyover, and then he dove down in some weeds here and there. And today, we're going to, really, we're going to land in the middle to the latter part of chapter 12, but let me give you the quick sort of flyover of chapter 11. Chapter 11 um, finds... Jesus uh, coming into Jerusalem. He's been out in the hinterlands, and he's coming into Jerusalem. He comes in on a donkey, um, but he comes in as a king, and you hear uh, the crowds are screaming, and they're screaming, you know, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, and Hosanna to the highest, and so forth. And then he, he curses a fig tree, and he, he, the language in the, uh, the most of you have heard is he cleanses the temple courts. Because they are, he says that they have made what should be and what has been a place of prayer for all the nations. They've turned it into a den of robbers. And he, and he gets angry and he flips over tables. And then in, in the middle of 11, the, the Pharisees, the scribes, they start questioning his authority, which they're kind of doing every time they see him, they're doing that. Uh, and in the beginning of chapter 12, he tells a parable, the parable of the talents. And then in the middle, he... Uh, he talks about paying taxes, the imperial tax to Caesar, and he says, he tells the people, give to Caesar what's Caesar's uh, and, <clears throat> and to God what's God's. And then uh, we get kind of to the middle of chapter 12, and where we're going to be today, middle to the end of chapter 12, we're going to talk about love today. We're going to talk about love, and I would imagine everybody sitting here, myself included, has loved, and we've all been loved. A lot of times... Though I think that we can miss uh, a fundamental truth about love, and it's this, that, that our love as human beings is fundamentally flawed, and it's flawed because we are fundamentally flawed. It's flawed because our sin nature makes everything that we are and do a little bit tainted. In this case, probably tainted by selfishness. And if you think about it, our love for other people is almost always based on some personal benefit. What's in it for me? A lot of times we love because there's, we at least perceive that there's something in it for me. I can get something out of that other person. And when you get right down to it, a lot of times we either love ourselves or we love God. And I say this all the time, my friends, too. I say you either love God or you don't. And Susan tells me that's so obnoxious, would you stop saying that? But that's a little bit of what we're talking about this morning. And, but even, even our love for the Lord is tainted by our sinful nature. It's not as much as it could be had that sinful nature not been there, had the events of the garden not taken place. <clears throat> our love for Him, Scripture says, our love for Him only exists because of 1 John 4.19 says because he loved us first. And so our love for him is really, for those of us that love him, is really on some level a direct response to his love for us. And look, 
And so our love for him is tainted. But I'm not, I'm not hating on love this morning. I just want us to see that our love as human beings at best is just imperfect. It's imperfect. And it may be lasting and it may be enduring, but at the end of the day, it is imperfect. But even with that said, it's a powerful motivator. And it's a powerful motivator because the truth is, I will absolutely, I will serve the one that I love. And so if I'm in love with myself, everything I do is going to be self-serving. Everything I do is going to be for some benefit for me. If I'm in love with the Lord, then everything I do is going to be viewed through the lens of serving Him. So in chapter 12, as Jesus is kind of bringing, <clears throat> bringing His ministry in the temple area sort of to a close, He gives us a tremendous lesson in love. So the title of today's message is, is, is Somebody to Love. Somebody to Love. And so I want you to see two truths in this. Two, you're going to see a bunch of different truths, but two main truths. And that is that uh, that some people love a fool and some people love the Lord. Some people love a fool, some people love the Lord. And I want, to, I want us to all together kind of examine our hearts today and maybe see who it is that we love. So the first truth is this. Some people love a fool. And the word fool <clears throat> in the original language, it's a, strong, it's a strong word. It's really almost a stronger word than it is as it translates into English. We would define a fool as a silly person, um, or somebody who doesn't have really good sense. They're just kind of silly. That's such a good, silly would be the good word. Now, Psalm 14 in verse 1 says, The fool says in his heart, there is no God. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. That Hebrew word that is translated fool in that culture, it really describes somebody who is morally deficient. Not just silly, but morally deficient. It describes like a vile person. And you're going to notice on the screen, and I hope it translated, yeah, <clears throat> the words there is are underlined, and they should be underlined in your worship guide as well. And that's because of this. Those two words in English, you do know your, your Bible wasn't written in English. It was written in Greek, New Testament-wise. Um, in the Old Testament, Psalms is written in Hebrew. And that the, those two words there is, are, are actually supplied by the translators to make the English more readable. And in this particular case, it kind of can cause us to, to read the text one way when it just may be that the Holy Spirit maybe intended it to be uh, perceived in a little different way. Most of us, I always have until I really, really studied this, this, uh, this passage, you see this text as speaking to an atheist. The fool says in his heart there is no God. And the truth is, of course, I would say that a person who is an atheist is a fool. I would say they're ignorant. Um, I would say they ain't got no sense. But if you read this text without those two words, there is, the text would say the fool says in his heart no God. It's different. It's different. The, the, the fool says in his heart, comma, no God. According to that, re that, that reading, the, uh, the, the, the fool is somebody who refuses to acknowledge the Lord as the sovereign and as his Savior. And the text that we're going to land in this morning, it gives us two classes of people who are in love with fools. First, you know, why do I say that? First is this, is this text, uh, the people that are mentioned in this text 
are fools because they have not, will not, refuse to bow to the authority of Christ. And second, they're in love with a fool because the text teaches us that they are in love with themselves. Let's look at that for a second. The first class of people that we're talking about is the righteous fool. The righteous fool. It's Mark 12, 38. As he taught, Jesus said, Watch out for the teachers of the law. They like to walk around in flowing robes and be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and have the most important seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at banquets. They devour widows' houses, and for a show they make lengthy prayers. These men will be punished severely, most severely. Jesus is giving us a scathing attack on the scribes, the Pharisees, the teachers of the law. They were the doctors of the law. They, they read, they copied, they interpreted. They did everything that had to do with the law for the people. They interpreted the text for the people. They were the authorities of what the, for the people. They were the authorities of what the law taught. They were religious celebrities. Really the people, the common people, worshipped them because they were like celebrities. And they may have been religious, but I would say they were religious fools. They were foolish because they refused to follow the spirit of the word of the Lord. Maybe not the letter of the law, at least in their minds, but they put to the curb the spirit of the law. They refused to acknowledge Jesus as the Messiah, even as he's walking right in front of them. And they were foolish because they loved themselves more than they could ever love the Lord. So consider in these couple of verses the, the, the Lord's description of them. First, he says they like to walk around in flowing robes. Well, they, walked, they were known because they wore these long white robes that had fringe down at the bottom of them. And, and they, they, they wore that get-up because it separated them from, uh, from the other folks. They look, it made them look, quote, holier than everybody else. Number one. Number two, they, they loved being greeted in the marketplaces with respect with respect. When, when the scribes would pass by in publics, they're in publics in Jerusalem, and they pass by, people would stand up and they would call them mass. Y'all didn't laugh, not even the littlest bit at the publics thing. Okay. The people, though, would stand up and they'd call them master or teacher or rabbi or father. They even used the words, my, my great one. They loved, they ate that stuff up when people said that. Number three, they loved the most important seat in the synagogue. And y'all, here's the most important seat in the synagogue. You had this stage sort of thing in the synagogue, and in the back of it, sort of in the back, you had an ark. And the ark, not ark like Noah riding on the ark, a big like um, armoire-looking thing. And the scrolls of the Torah were in there, and there was a seat that was right in front of that. And that was their seat. They loved sitting in that seat because they would be seen as being near the law, because they were guarding the law. And they loved being in that seat because everybody out there could see how holy and, and, quote, religious and how close to the law that they were. They loved being seen by everybody in the synagogue. Number three, number four, they, they loved the places of honor at banquets. When rich folks had a party, they would always invite the scribes, the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, kind of to serve as a garnish to the party. These folks were the A-list celebrities of the day, and having them come to the party, that the person having the party would knew that a bunch of folks would come because they were there was celebrity worship. 
and they, they would always occupy the seat, the place of honor at that banquet. They ate that up because everybody saw that they were the most important person or people that were at that party. Number four. Number five is this. They, they devoured, the text said they devoured uh, widows' houses. They served oftentimes as, uh, as estate planners because you've got to know most of the people in that day, common people, were really, they couldn't, most of them couldn't read and write. And so you had these poor widows, and, and typically they're outliving their husband, and the scribes, the Pharisees, teachers of the law, often served as an estate planner for this, these widows. And what they did is they extorted money out of them. Often they extorted, and that's what the text is saying when it says they devoured their houses. Number six says that they make a long show uh, uh, they make a show of their long prayers. The scribes love to stand, and Jesus drills them for this throughout the Gospels. <clears throat> but they make a, uh, they stand in public and they pray long and elaborate and wordy prayers that they hoped would impress the typically uneducated common folks of the day. They're hit. You ever know anybody that way? Just, it's just vain repetition of bunches of words when what the Lord wants in our prayers, He wants to be our Abba. He wants to be our Daddy. He just wants us to crawl up in His lap and talk to Him. He doesn't want, he doesn't, he doesn't want all these fancy thuses and thous and all these fancy words. That, ain't, that just ain't what it is about. For them, it was totally about that because they wanted people looking at them on the street corners and saying just how holy they were. And lastly, he, Jesus tells us they're headed for severe punishment because of this. Those men were nothing but religious hypocrites and they will absolutely face God's judgment at some point. Jesus says that. And so as I think through, or even this week as I is, is thinking through his warning to them, because that's a warning that they, they're going to face serious punishment, there's a few lessons that we can learn in that. None of us, I don't imagine, here today are scribes. None of us are Pharisees. None of us are teachers of the law. But some of us may possess a little bit of the attitude that controlled those men. Religion was a game to them. It was just a big, it was just a big game. They didn't have a personal relationship. They were playing this God thing. They didn't have a personal relationship with the Lord. He was not their Abba father. He was not their dad. They didn't call him daddy. You know, they didn't do that. But they thought, believed, and lived as if their good works and their devotion and their knowledge, quote, of the law was good enough to save them. And the fact is they were dead wrong. And if you think that today, you're dead wrong. Religion, quote, religion and religious activities and a bunch of doing cannot, does not, and will not ever save you. Ephesians 2, 8, 9 just plainly says it. For it is by grace that you have been saved. It doesn't say know the law and you'll be saved. It says but it is by grace that you've been saved through faith and this is not of yourselves. It's a gift from God. Not by works so that no one can boast. If it's by works, then I get to boast. If it's by works, then I'm the one that gets to say, look what I did and, I, and, and that saved me. Doing good things and obviously there's nothing wrong with doing good things. But doing good things and keeping the rules will never, ever, 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 never has and never will save you. 
It's a faith relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ that saves you, that causes you to do those things. For these guys, though, everything that they did was geared towards satisfying their pride and making them look good in front of all the people that are sitting out there. Literally, they were in love with themselves. Their hearts were full. But their hearts were full of themselves. There was no vacancy in there. There was no room left because they were so full of themselves that there was no room left for the Lord. If you today, this is going to sound so harsh, if today you are in love with yourself, then you're in love with a fool. And you're probably going to spend eternity with that fool somewhere that you don't want to spend. So uh, this is the question. Are you today, are you a religious fool? Are you in love with yourself? I hope not. I hope none of us are. That kind of religious superiority, it still exists today. It still exists in churches. You see it all the time. Sometimes you see some so-called big-name preacher and they come in and they expect to be catered to and they expect to get in their robes and collars and fancy clothes and $180 million airplanes and all this stuff and they slide onto the stage on a cord and they come like elevated out of the stage so that everybody can sit. That ain't what it's about, y'all. That's just not what it's about. Uh, That's just not what it's about. The preacher Ought never be, is never ever any more important than anybody else. Anybody else in the seats sitting out there. He's called out of the seats to feed and maybe to lead the people that are in the seats, but that's it. He ought never be worshipped. He ought never be exalted. He ought never be put on some crazy sort of pedestal. He ought never be seen to be superior, but, but just as equal, as an equal in the eyes of God. When it comes to me personally say just a word or two. I just want to be Ed. I'm just, that's all I am, just Ed. It, I cracked up, and I've left it at home. I meant to bring it. We got a letter last week in the mail from International Friendship Ministries, and I don't know if any of y'all have ever heard of them. They're a great ministry in Columbus, and my wife happens to serve uh, on their board of directors. But we get this letter in the mail, and it is addressed to the Reverend Edward, the Reverend and Mrs. Edward Griffinhagen. I cracked up. I'm like, I ain't no reverend. It's the funniest thing. I, reverend just cracked me up. I just want to be Ed. I just want to be Ed. The truth of the matter is in the scriptures, there's no such thing as lead pastor. There's no such, the word, the, the Greek word that is in there, it's presbyteros, and it is really a word for a shepherd or a leader, and we, or for an elder. And, and the, true, the truth of the matter is when you are in a church that has an elder structure, we do, There's five of us. There's not four elders and Ed. It's a plurality of elders. It's from an authority perspective. The elders are just all the same, just another elder. No different than anybody else. I hope you all get that. And if I ever start acting otherwise, throw something from out there up here because I don't ever, I I just don't want to ever be that way, ever, ever be that way. You also see that sometimes in the membership so to speak, of a church. People who like think they're the head chief cook and bottle washer of the whole church. They always got to be giving you their opinion on everything. And by the way, their opinion is the only opinion that counts. And they're right. They've never been proven to be wrong. They're right all the time. They want to be recognized and they want to be honored and they want to have 
like the Pharisees, they want to have the chief seat in the synagogue or in the, you know, in the church. They want to be in control. They're just like the ancient scribes. They want to have their, their name on the wall, like so it says, the Ed Griffin Hagen Worship Center or something. That ain't what it's about. It's not. People like that, y'all, dangerous, divisive, and cancerous, but that they're religious fools, and they're all over the place. So that's that first class. The second class is this, is the rich fool. The rich fool. When Jesus finishes teaching the people, he took a seat in kind of near the treasury, verse 41 says, in the temple complex, and he's near the treasury. It says, Jesus sat down opposite the place where the offerings were put and watched the crowd putting their money into the temple treasury. Many rich people threw, the text says, threw in large amounts. That temple complex area was set aside for giving. The treasury had 13 uh, containers, and the containers looked like, uh, like an upside-down trumpet bowl like this. And that's, that's where the contributions went. And there was nine of them that were for certain dues-related things in the temple, and four were for like various kinds of offerings. And Jesus sat there, and he's watching people as they walk in, and they're bringing their gifts, and he's watching how they gave. Most importantly, he's watching how they gave their gifts. He saw what they were doing with his eyes, and he saw the motive that was in their hearts as they come in there. And some of them, y'all, they came with trumpets blaring and fanfare and red carpets coming out. And they, it's like they're, they're stand back in, in honor of the NCAA tournament, and they're shooting threes with, into the offering buckets with, with their money for some extra drama. And, and others gave with a frown on their face, and they're holding on as tight as they can to their, to their money, and somebody's prying their fingers apart, you know, to get it in there. And then other, other folks probably stopped to make sure that everybody was looking at them as they put their offering into that bucket. Look, Matthew 6, beginning of Matthew 6, it described, first four or five verses, described the absurdness of the Jews in the way that they gave. Some actually hired trumpeters, is that the word? Trumpeteers, to go in front of them, blowing a trumpet as they go into, it's actually called the court of women, that place where the giving was, to blow the trumpet as they come in there. They'd come into the treasury and they'd make this big, huge show of all of it. And when they threw their money in there, it clanked because it's brass or steel, it clanged around and made all kind of noise and heads would turn and people would stare at them in admiration at the great sums of money that they gave. So you imagine that scene if we were sitting there, the doors open up and a red carpet comes rolling out and the trumpeteer, I learned a new word today, the trumpeteer comes in and he's blowing the trumpet and in walks the person and, the, and here's what it sounded like, y'all. It sounded like this. All of that clinging, it's loud, and it's, I did that last night, and my little dachshund dog leapt like this high off the couch, tucked the tail, and ran under the other couch. But that, that's what happened. It would make all this noise. And you know what? We're going to play a game today. I need two people. How about you be one? And how about Lonnie, you'll be one. Stand behind those lines, and here's what we're going to do. You each get in honor of the NCAA basketball tournament. And by the way, I can't stand basketball. I wish we could play football in here somehow, but we can't. Two, three, three. Here's what we're going to do. Grab. You take those three and give those three to him. 
You get three shots, you get three shots. Got to get it in there. And if anybody gets it in there, you get a T-shirt. Have an official Church on the Trail T-shirt. I need to move because she's like fixing to chunk it. Here we go. Y'all clap. Ah! That's what it sounded like, y'all, though, all that dinging. Did you already shoot three? Yeah, yeah. Well, you know what? You both get a T-shirt. <laughs> so cool. Thanks. So look, most of those people, they're not given for the right reasons. They're totally not. They're given for the applause and the praise of men. And according to Jesus, when they got that praise, they got their reward. And that's the only reward that they're going to get. They were fools because they loved themselves, y'all. Whenever you love, no, I'd say it this way, whether you love your religious works, whether you love your possessions or you just love yourselves, your love is completely misplaced and misapplied. You can never give enough. You can never be good enough. You can never do enough ever to impress God and earn your salvation. Never. It, that is a lie from hell. And that is the lie, that lie exists today. And that is what the devil gets all up in your ear and he says, the only way that you will ever get to God is to get to the end of yourself. That's the only, that's the only way. To fall down in front of him, to admit your weakness, to admit and confess your insufficiency. You will never ever get saved until you find yourself in that spot. So do you love God today or are you in love with a fool? Because you've got to remember, you cannot impress him. You're not going to impress him. You can't please him. Your riches and your stuff and your religion is only really going to lead you down the, the, the path, the road that leads to hell. So some people love fools. Some people love a fool. But then some people love the Lord. And so as Jesus is watching, imagine he's in that court of women, in that treasury area, and he's watching all these people come in. And these rich people giving their money, and the text literally says they threw it like y'all were throwing it. Of course, y'all all missed, but they were throwing it. He sees this poor little lady, this poor little widow woman walk in. Verse 42 says, but a poor widow came and put in two very small copper coins worth only a few cents. And so as Jesus is watching, this poor, humble little lady comes in and gives her gift. And the people shouted and they applauded for all the rich people and their big money gifts. But nobody even noticed this little lady come in. No one except the only one that matters, right? All the other people are noticing the big dollar, people throwing money at it. But the only one that really mattered notices her. And in that widow's giving, we can see a portrait of the genuine love for the Lord. Look at... Uh, let's look at a couple things. First is this. First is the evidence, the evidence of her love. And that's seen in the fact that she's even given at all, just that she's even giving anything at all. She was a poor widow. There wasn't no Medicare. There wasn't no welfare. There wasn't no Social Security. They were the poorest. The widows were the poorest of the poor in that society. Whatever they had, the Pharisees probably extorted from her. And so she didn't have anything. They lived, literally lived hand to mouth. And so here's this widow, poor little widow lady, and she comes in to the very presence of God and gives to him. She didn't have much. 
Two small copper coins is what the text says. They're called a mite, M-I-T-E. They're called a mite. In fact, today we call them a widow's mite. And the reason we call them today a widow's mite is because it's coming from that story in the Gospels. A mite, a mite, and actually, is it one on the screen? Yeah, that's a widow's mite. This one is from about 50 A.D., which would have been about the time that all this stuff was, was going on. That is equal to about 128th of a day's wages. In today's world, that would be about 95 cents. So she throws in about $1.80 because it says she threw two of these mites in. And so it was a gift that amounted to nothing from a money perspective, from a value perspective when she drops her two little coins in there. And you heard what it sounded like when they're chunking all their gold in there. That's what it sounds like when she throws in. It was nothing. It was like nothing to them among the clamor and the noise and the fanfare of the rich folks throwing all their stuff in there. Why she bother even to give that insignificant gift? Her two cents among the thousands of dollars in our language, it seems so small, so why even bother? This little lady, though, is everything that these religious scribes and Pharisees and hypocrites were not. She was a living, breathing illustration of just a few verses before in Mark 12, 29, in response to the question, this is an answer in response to the question of what's the greatest commandment. Verse 29 says, <clears throat> the most important one answer Jesus is this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. She gave because she loved him with everything that is in her, her heart, her mind, her strength, her soul, everything that she had, she loved him with. She loves him, loved him more than she loved her own life. And she proved that by the way that she gave. So first is the evidence of her love. Second is the extravagance of her love. Jesus saw her giving. And he says in verse 43, calling his disciples to him, Jesus said, Truly I tell you, this poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others. They all gave out of their wealth. But she gave out of her poverty, put in everything, all she had to live on. He gives her props because of the way that she gave, the way that she gave. She could have kept those coins herself, but she willingly gave both of them. So everything that poor woman had was given to the Lord. It's an example of, of she's an example of extravagant giving, and the Bible's full of examples like that. Abraham is willing to sacrifice Isaac. Hannah in 1 Samuel dedicates and gives Samuel to the Lord. You got people martyred. You got people giving their lives for Christ. Virtually all of Jesus' guys gave their life for him. Why do people pay that kind of a price? They did it because they loved God more than they loved their stuff and definitely more than they loved themselves. They didn't give until it hurt. They gave until it felt good. And that's a lesson that we ought to all learn. So the extravagance of her love. And thirdly, the extent of her love. That little lady could never have known ultimately what her gift would ever accomplish. She walks into that temple, ignored by the rich, the religious folks, and the people caught up in the, in the celebrity worship of the day. She walks in with her little gift, and she gave it without fanfare. The rich folks walk in, and they receive their applause, and then they walk away. This poor little widow walks in and then walks away, but her gift is still given today. How many people you reckon in the last 2,000 years have been challenged by the way and 
by her gift and have given their little bit using that woman's example. The rich people gave to be acknowledged by men. That's why they gave to be acknowledged by men and they received their reward that day and that's the only reward they gave, that they received. This little widow lady gave because she loved the Lord. No trumpet blasts, no oohs and ahs, no red carpets rolling out, no, no applause, but, but I'm pretty sure that Jesus is applauding her, applauding her. I would imagine that there's divine applause going on in heaven. Today she's standing in the very presence of the Lord for eternity. There's a, as we're closing, there's a few observations that I kind of want to make, and we gotta, I want us to, to allow God to speak about these matters to our hearts and maybe to help us grow. There's five or six little nuggets. Number one is, is, is this, that the attitude of our hearts in giving is what makes the difference. Our attitude of our hearts. How we give is far more important than what we give. Number one. Number two is this. The motivation for our giving, the motivation for our giving reveals the depth of the faith and trust that we have in the Lord. When this little widow lady gave, she gave everything that she had to give. When she gave in total silence, she preached one of the most powerful sermons ever preached. And she didn't even say a word. Here's what she said. She said, I give because I love him. I give because I trust him. I give because he's given to me. She knew everything that she had was given by her Lord. And so she could do no less than give back what he had given her. Number two. Number three is this, that God will do great things with our small offerings. You tell me any, the amount of any other gift that was given because this is the week leading up to the, to the crucifixion. It's Passover week. Tell me what anybody else gave that week. You can't because nothing else is recorded except her measly little 128th of a day's wages. 2,000 years later, we're sitting here talking about it. It keeps on giving. And so no, n- number four is this, is the attitude of our hearts, again, not the size of our gift, makes, that's what makes the gift usable by the Lord. It doesn't matter what you got, what you give. It doesn't, it doesn't, it's not the amount. He's going to take what we give him, be it 128th of a day's wage or $10,000, and he is going to use it the way that he wants to use it. And he is going to use that to bring him glory, number one, and he's going to use that to lead to someone else's forever. And when he leads When he uses that to lead to somebody else's forever, that brings him glory. It is all about bringing him glory. Final point is this. God doesn't want nor need your money. He wants you. He wants you. He wants me. He wants my love and my devotion. He wants your love and he wants your devotion. When he has that, when he has that, when you bow the knee and he has that, he has every single thing else that we possess. When God has a person, He's got all of you. Your pocketbook is part of the all of you. He's got your heart. He's got your mind. He's got your hands. He's got your feet. And He can use all of that. He can use your mind for somebody else's forever. He can use your heart, which used to be hard and now it's soft, for somebody else's forever. He can use your hands and your feet for somebody else's forever. 
all of that stirred up in a bucket is what brings him glory. The real point of this story, y'all, has nothing to do with giving. The point of this story has everything to do with the attitude of my heart. The point of the story is the contrast between the hard hearts of the, of the religious elite, the scribes, the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, and the soft heart of this poor little widow lady. That's the point of the story. The religious and the rich folks of the day loved themselves. They did what they did to be seen by folks. They were motivated in everything they did by pride and self-love. This widow, on the other hand, is motivated by her love for the Lord. Because of her devotion, y'all, because of her devotion, her gift lives on. So here's the question today, and I'll leave this with you this week. Who do you love? You love somebody. So who is it? Do you do what you do because you're in love with yourself? Or do you do what you do because you're in love with Jesus? Or are you in love with the person that's staring back at you in the mirror? And I'm asking you this. Has God spoken a little bit to you today, to your heart a little bit, about who it is that you love? If you have sat here today and you thought, you know what, for 35 years I really have served myself. For 35 years I really have loved myself. And you feel even the slightest little tug on your heart, the slightest little tug to fall in love with Jesus, today needs to be the day that you fall in love with Him. Because you don't know what's going to happen when you walk out that door. And I say that every week, but it's the truth. We don't know. I found out a good friend of mine that's about 39 years old has colon cancer. Found out last week. That's young, y'all. You don't know what is around the corner. today. If you feel that tug, let today be the day. If He's spoken to you today about your giving, come talk to Him about that. You know, the truth of the matter is, if you want to give Him the greatest gift of all, ain't got nothing to do with no money. Give Him yourself. Serve in His name. Let, let Him use your hands and your feet and your pocketbook and your brain and your heart and your soul, and everything that you are. It ain't a big complicated formula. You don't have to have a PhD. You don't have to be a scribe or a Pharisee or a teacher of the law. You don't have to know the Bible. All you got to know is I'm a sinner. Something's wrong inside of me. It needs to be fixed. You ain't going to get fixed until you know that there's a problem in there. Repent of the problem. Confess with your mouth that He is Lord and believe in your heart. And guess what? You will live for eternity with that sweet little widow lady that threw that little nothing into the big trumpet amongst the thousands of coins. That's who you're going to be living with. Me? I want to live with her. I want to live with her. And I hope you do too. Y'all pray with me. Lord, we love you today. Lord, we thank you so much that you loved us enough to teach us to 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 die on that cross for our sin. Lord, we thank you that you use narratives in, in your word like this to teach us some heart lessons, to teach us that that event in the garden really did harden our hearts, that that event in the garden really did change things. But then you came and you made it right. At least you made it possible to be righted. And all we have to do is repent, confess, and believe. 
and we're going to be with you for eternity. And Lord, we thank you so much for that. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, the last thing would be this. If that happened to you today, please put that on that connection card. Drop it in the offering bucket. And please, if you feel led to, in that corner back there is our prayer team who would love to pray with you, pray for you, pray with you, whatever it is. Please go back there and take advantage of that. We're in a time in our worship experience now where we, we do give back to him really part of what's already his. Um, all of it is his, and we're going to give back a little bit. And we're going to give back, why? Because he needs it? No, he don't need it. We're going to give back because our hearts are different. We're going to give back because our attitudes are different. That's why we do this. I told you a minute ago, he don't need your money. He gives you. He needs you. He wants you. He desires you. And so let me pray a blessing over our, uh, over our offering, and then I'll, uh, oh, last thing before I pray. As this, thir- this last song is playing, we're going to baptize, we're going to have a, a God plunge, five young people, five kids from our Trail Kids ministry. We're going we're gonna to throw them in that over there. We're going to shoot a three from here to over there. So if you have a, a child in, in either in the Trail Tots or in the Trail Kids, as this last song is, is, is going on, please go ahead and get them because we want our kids to see us doing this. We don't want to do it in here while they're over there. We want every time we do, do a God plunge, that's what we want to do. We want to, we want to see, we want their friends to see that being modeled. And when we do it with adults, we want the kids to see the adults modeling that. So we want to do that as a family. Um, so it's okay when they're playing to get up and go get your kids. So now let me pray. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to be here in worship today. Lord, we thank you for the privilege, for the honor to be able to give back to be able to give something back. And you know what? We give back because we love you. We give back because we trust you. And we trust that you're going to take this money, this, these financial resources, and you're going to allow us to use them to lead to somebody's forever. That you're going to allow us to use them to lead, to do two things, Lord, to lead people to the foot of your cross and to help to grow the people that are already there. Lord, that's a yardstick. That's what it is. And so we thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen.